Hello and welcome to this CRISPR Journal podcast mini-series brought to you by Horizon Discovery. I'm your host, Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal, now in its third year of publication. And we're having a lot of fun bringing you these interviews with a variety of guests, uh, many of them leading researchers and uh, leading Horizon specialists and uh, business managers uh, to talk about various aspects of CRISPR biology and applying this groundbreaking technology in a variety of different experimental settings. So we've been focusing on some of the technical tools and strategies in performing CRISPR experiments. Some of our recent guests in this series have included Amanda Arbab from the Broad Institute on CRISPR editing outcomes and Samira Kiani from the University of Pittsburgh on CRISPR safety. You can find the full library of podcasts, which is rapidly approaching double digits, including conversations with Jason Schultzer, Britt Adamson, Stanley Chi, and Omar Abadai and Jonathan Gutenberg, among others, at the Horizon CRISPR Learning Center. You can find that link handily uh, from the homepage of the CRISPR Journal, www.crisprjournal.com. Today's discussion, we're going to be talking about CRISPR screening. And my guest today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nicola McCarthy, who is the Screening Business Unit Manager for Horizon, based near Cambridge, England. Hello, Nicola. Hi there, Kevin. Nice to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you. And doing a little bit of uh, background research before we brought you onto the program, I see that we share a past employer in common. We do indeed. We were both part of Nature Publishing Group, I believe. Good times and a fun career. It's great working in publishing. Yeah, you were there for a decade. And usually, yeah. you know, for someone who's been in a decade, you know, it just sort of carry on down the same road. But interestingly, yeah. you kind of having left the research world to move into publishing kind of made it some other way back. So tell us uh, what went into your thinking behind joining Horizon a few years ago. Obviously, working for Nature, and I work for Nature Reviews Cancer, um, yeah. you learn an awful lot in addition to what you learned at the bench and you learned from your research career, just through handling and dealing with some of the top names in cancer research. And what you also find when you're working for a reviews journal is that you are looking at trying to find new subjects to cover. And when you've done that for 10 years, you kind of get familiar with what's going on. I'm sure you're aware of this. Yeah. And so I wanted to use the knowledge I'd acquired in a slightly different way. And an opportunity right. arose to move into Horizon Discovery. I've not worked in biotech industry or for a CRO before. So it's just a different way of using acquired knowledge to repurpose what you know and use it to yeah. aid different people, really. Just to check the boxes on your resume, what's your scientific background? What was your education? So um, I have a degree in anatomy, and then I did a PhD, which was all focused on program cell deaths, so all apoptosis. And most of my research has always been within the cancer field, apart yeah. from a five-year deviation into cardiovascular research. Again, all on apoptosis, but more on apoptosis and atherosclerosis. So yeah, that's my cool. background. And in your current role, the big picture, what is your main job at the company? So as a business unit manager, I oversee now all of the business that feeds into the screening business unit, which is any screening that we undertake. So that could be CRISPR, it could be RNAi type screens, it could be cell panel screens to look for new drugs or how drugs interact across a panel of cells. But it's also a whole set of immunology assays as well that we also have started to build into the CRISPR screening side of the business. When customers engage with you, do you advise all projects, all inquiries that are coming in? No, not all of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, some customers are just interested in buying libraries from us, which yeah. are off-the-shelf products, so that's quite straightforward. Yeah. Um, some of them are interested in talking to us about standard CRISPR screens. So, again, we use our field application specialist for that kind of thing. But some customers come to us who have heard that we have started to work in an area that they're interested in. And they want to build a collaboration for a new way of screening. It might be in a new cell type. It might be a new endpoint to an assay, for example. And that's when we work more collaborative with them. So I have a bit of input in that area. But also a lot of what I do is talking to customers and finding out what they want in the next two to three years, where they see themselves in five years. What are they expecting from CRISPR screens in two years, three years, four years, yeah. five years? What capacity do they want? That kind of thing. And briefly, who's the typical customer? Is it from all around the world? Is it industry and academia or primarily academia? It very much depends on what they're coming to us for. So a lot of our academic people that come to us, some of them, it might be generating cell lines. Some of it might be buying off the shelf products like the libraries, CRISPR screening libraries or RNAi libraries. RNAi is still really popular, especially in the academic community, all the way through to really large pharma which are using CRISPR a lot in their target ID and validation pipelines to find new mm. therapeutics. So really, we see it across the board and also mostly across the world. Well, you're the head of the screening business unit. And yep. just for the record, how would you define screening in that context? In the context that we use it, it really is anything that is large scale, high throughput, or really large, you know, CRISPR screens, whole genome CRISPR screens across yeah. two, three, four, up to 20 cell lines, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. So, okay. yeah, big time stuff that either takes a postdoc or a PhD student three years to work on. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. We tend to do that bigger side from the services point of view. But it's looking to people who want to outsource stuff at scale, really, I think is probably where we would play in terms of the services side of the screening. One of the topics we wanted to touch on is CRISPR screens in primary cells. Yeah. Why is that important to the research community? I think because in terms of trying to understand biology, obviously, when we all started back in the lab, you know, cell lines are really easy to use. They tend to tolerate being used and abused in culture quite well. And it was harder to work with primary cells. There weren't the media to support them or that kind of thing, which has massively developed over the past 15, 20 years or so. Yeah. And so when we've been working with clients and when we've been developing our in-house R&D, obviously, given the rise of immunotherapy and cancer research, was one of the reasons the first primary cells we looked at were mm -hmm. T cells basically because we know that you can transduce them with an antivirus. And so really running a CRISPR screen in them should have been quite straightforward. At least that's the yeah. way we thought to start off with. Yeah. It turns out it's not. <laughs> you know, primary cells have these foibles that cancer cell lines have obviously mutated out over time when they've been isolated and then grown in culture. T cells don't particularly like Cas9 when it's introduced by Alenti, which everybody in the field found when they started trying to use CRISPR screens in primary immune cells, for example. And so there's been a lot of troubleshooting to get around that. Huh. But it was really because we felt that we wanted to find out whether you could do these kinds of screens in primary cells. And I think moving into immunology for us made sense as a CRO because we could see the interest growing already in finding new targets within immune cells in terms of using them to modulate cancer therapy. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that in a GERCAT T-cells. GERCATs work really well with CRISPR, but okay. you're removed from what you might find in a primary cell. So it's being able to use primary cells as being a step closer to your patient, as it were, rather than a cell line that's been in culture for a certain number of years.
I wasn't aware of the different cell types kind of react and respond and cope with uh, CRISPR, Cas9 or other Cas's potentially, I'm sure. Are there tricks to getting around the ones that don't want to cooperate? Yes, there are. I think it's been a very interesting journey for everybody working in this primary immune cells in terms of the CRISPR response. And so I think there's been real cooperation between groups that are working on cell line engineering and that those groups that are working on screening and what they found in the cell line engineering, both in the literature and in-house, was that if you split the system, so if you introduce your guide, but then you can introduce Cas9 via electroporation as either an mRNA or a protein, that's one way to get around introducing them all in one lot. So that was one of the ways that we found that you could get around in terms of introducing Cas9 as an mRNA, but your guides still as a lenti, and then you've mm. got a kind of hybrid system. And the whole primary immune cell screening, I guess, research arena has kind of traveled on that path together in terms of finding ways around and different immune cells cells will tolerate different aspects. So what format do these screens take? You've already touched on this, but what sort of general guidelines can you offer? So with the pooled, so far we've managed to run those in the primary T-cells. So again, you can run quite big screens in the primary T-cells using a spritz system because of bringing the guides in via lentivirus and then introducing the Cas9 as either a protein or mRNA. You can also screen quite well in primary T-cells in the arrayed format where you're electroporating in RMPs, for example. That works really nicely as well. And so for T-cells, it really depends on what you want, what your output is from your screen. If you want to understand a co-culture endpoint, for example, so where you might be adding T-cells in with a different set of cells, you'd probably go for an arrayed screening format because you can get lots of different endpoints like cytokines or runner facts, that kind of thing. With pooled screens, it's slightly more binary. If you're looking for something that makes them survive for longer under specific conditions, you might want to do a pooled screen, whole genome. So it kind of just depends on what your endpoints are and what you're interested Mm. in, really. Are you seeing more customers eager to do screening in primary cells? Is that on the upswing? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of interest in those now. And that's one of the reasons why we've also been, you know, moving forward, trying to bring other immune cell types into the CRISPR screening forum. Right. What are some of the key technical uh, tips or successes when people are trying to undertake screens in primary cells? I think it's really just to take a look at the literature that's already out there. There are some very good groups that have at least done some of the troubleshooting already for you. And I think that it's very much a case of just because something works in a cell line is really no guarantee at all that it will work in a primary immune cell. And I think for people that aren't used to handling primary immune cells, there's a lot of additional work to be done in terms of just setting everything up from scratch. You know, in that even if you're working on, let's say, editing a particular immune cell, what will work with editing a cell population is not the same as what will work for a screening cell population. A lot of what we try to do is if we're setting up an arrayed format and an immune cell type, we will start from what we will end up using. So for us, that might be a 384 well electroporation piece. So I think it's start as you mean to go on. You save yourself a lot of time that way and really spend a lot of time on the idealization, spend a lot of time on building your screen, and then also really carefully considering what kind of screen you want to run, what endpoint you want at the end, and whether you could use a nice pooled format or whether an array is much better if you want to look at multiple endpoints. 
Okay. You mentioned resources and uh, other groups that have been doing the pioneering work. So I want to follow up on both of those. Are there any particular resources that come to mind that you say, this is where you need to start kind of compiling the the information and the protocols and things that you might need? And, and also who in the community is really doing some of the best work in this field that you think are setting the bar very high? I think Alex Marson's group has been one of the big groups that's done an awful lot in the primary immune cell field. So really, I would recommend everybody reading those papers initially to get a feel for certainly handling T-cells. And Alex has done some work with B-cells as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good thing. I think in terms of resources, I'm probably not the best person in the world to ask for that because I still spend a lot of time. My computer is my resource, especially at the moment. And so I always start with PubMed and basically seeing what's been published, using that as a run through. Right. How do you see this platform evolving in the next few years? I think it's going to kind of follow through in terms of bringing more of what we already have achieved in the cell lines with CRISPR screening into the primary cells, for example. So obviously everybody starts mostly with CRISPR knockout, but for some of the questions we want to ask, CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A are going to be better, but you are trying to introduce slightly more components in each time. So I think we are examining those two mostly arrayed at the moment in terms of the primary immune cells. I think one of the other areas that we're really going to see develop in this is what's termed CropSeq or CRISPR with single cell RNA-seq at the end. That's a very interesting area because you can get a lot of information out of a very small number of cells. And that's your massive limitation when you're working with primary cells is how many of the cells can you actually get hold of. With T cells, it's easy. Well, relatively easy because they will proliferate quite nicely for you in culture. But with things like B cells, unless you're set up to really handle them with a complicated cold culture piece. You don't extract that many B cells out of a blood donor, for example. Mm. Um, And that's also true for other primary cell types or or primary immune cells as well. So anything you can do on the smaller scale, but get a big omics reading at the end, which RNA-seq tends to allow you, will give you a lot more data. Mm. Um, And so that's an area that we're really expecting to become pretty big. Just a couple of questions before we close, Nicola. For groups or investigators who are contemplating you know, a big screening experiment, how can Horizon help them? What are some of the factors that they should balance between trying to do it themselves versus coming to a group like yours? So what we always try and establish with the group is, you know, what have they already got in-house? Because sometimes you end up talking to a client who maybe they've spent a lot of time previously doing RNAi screens. They have a set of really established endpoints off an arrayed platform. Well, then in that case, we would talk to them about buying in a CRISPR library and actually doing the work themselves in-house because they have a lot of those components already in place. Whereas some people come to us and they're really not sure what they want to do. They think that they should be doing a CRISPR screen. They don't know whether that should be a pooled screen or an arrayed screen, whether it should be CRISPR-I, whether it should be CRISPR-A. And so then it's just establishing what did they want to get out of the screen? What are their endpoints? What are they after? And then working back from there as to what might suit them and working with the people that come to us to try and find a good solution that works for them within the time frame that they have. What is, without necessarily mentioning any particular client names, but I wonder if you can think of a recent case study that has worked well, where the results that you gave back to the client was exactly kind of what they were looking for. What's the sort of the timeline and scope of that uh, engagement? 
you know, for some of the more complicated projects that we undertake with some of our clients, it can be quite a long process. For some recent work that we've done, it would be maybe six months of discussion with a customer or client before we agree on what the actual work is going to look like. And then it could take, you know, some of our projects take up to 10 months plus to deliver all the way through because it might be that we're designing an assay, validating the assay, and then taking the assay into the screening process. So okay. it can be quite a long process. A long engagement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you're holding their hand all the way through. Yeah, we're holding the hand all the way through. And then, as I say, some people just come to us and say, you know, I want to do a Christmas screen. I want to do it in these two cell lines. And it's just bang, bang, and it's done and the data are delivered to them. So it really just depends on who's coming to us for what. Yeah. You must feel that the 10 years you spent publishing and rejecting manuscripts, <laughs> that sort of ability to work with authors in a slightly different way, that must come in useful. It does come in useful. It's very good for expectation setting because you do get some people that come to you that have heard about CRISPR and it's this new shiny toy. And like any shiny toys, they look brilliant. But when you actually take them in closely, you find that they're not as perfect as they appeared from a distance. And that's true of all biology. You know, it's very much a case of setting their expectations in the same way that you set somebody's expectations around a paper. So, Yeah. yeah. In closing, Nicola, we're still in the middle of a pandemic here. How has Horizon, how has your group been able to uh, survive? Have things been shuttered or slowed down or have you been able to find a way around it? We were quite lucky here in the UK in that we were able to keep the labs open. And that was also true, particularly of our labs in the US at the Boulder site as well. When we did that by literally taking everybody that doesn't work in the lab out. (laughs) Um, So removing as many people like myself from the office and then allowing our scientists to work shift work and reducing the number of people allowed in the lab at any one time and keeping them safe that way. So yeah, we've been able to keep running. That's fantastic. Well, really an interesting and enlightening discussion. I hope people who've made it through to the end feel they've learned a little bit about the services and skill sets that Horizon offers. So Nicola McCarthy, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that concludes our latest episode in this Horizon podcast mini-series. On behalf of everyone at the CRISPR Journal and Horizon for bringing you this series, thanks very much for joining us. I'm Kevin Davis, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode in the very near future. Thanks again, and goodbye for now.